Hello, Pastor Kevin Davis here. Thanks for tuning in, for listening to our Good Friday service uh, sermon. Uh, I had some people read for us this evening, but uh, I didn't want to put the microphone on everyone and hit the stop and play on the record, so I'm just going to read those passages because they uh, tie in with the message that I preached. So let me go ahead and read those for you. I'll be reading out of the New American Standard Bible, uh, 1977. John chapter 1, beginning with verse 29, reading through 34, says, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. And I did not recognize him, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And John bore witness, saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. And I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Next, let's read from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. We read here, On the next day the great multitude who had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed the sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Lastly, let's, let's read from John chapter 18, 38 through 19, verse 5. We read, And when Pilate had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? Therefore they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, king of the Jews, and to give him blows in the face. And Pilate Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus therefore came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. 
And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. You were listening to the verse references this evening as we come together to remember Christ's body, broken body, I should say, and shed blood. I really wanted us to consider from the Gospel of John. Um, if you've been with us on Sundays, we've been in this series where I've intended to look at four scenes from the four gospel writers for four sermons. And in this third sermon on Good Friday, I, I felt the Lord direct my attention to just two and a half verses here as John records Jesus expiring on the cross. If you want to turn in uh, your Bibles or just listen, John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, we read, But there were standing by the cross of Jesus, His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. Let's pray. Father, as we are invited by your Scriptures into this evening, to these moments that you had at the cross with your mother Mary and with this disciple whom you love, John. We pray that um, your Spirit would be faithful to invite us into hearing your voice and what it is you desire to communicate to us. We pray we would have open hearts and ears to hear your voice. Father, for the things you tell us, we pray that we would receive it as you would have us receive it. Uh, We thank you again for what you are doing here in these moments, dying for the sins of the world, dying for our sins. And thank you that we do not serve a, a dead Savior, but a risen one. We love you and we ask and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I know you might find this A little hard to believe, but the passages we've read from John were chosen on purpose. (laughs) Uh, In fact, I even told some of our readers to only pick a, a certain number of translations of the Bible because I wanted to make sure we heard a word in each of these readings. It's why I'm not preaching out of our BSB tonight, but that word is behold. And according to one keyword search on a translation I'm using, the, the New American Standard, according to one keyword search, the word behold shows up 15 times in the book of John. But we've heard tonight the times where behold is followed by a title of Jesus. Save this text right here, but we've heard behold the Lamb. We've heard behold your King. We've heard, behold the man. Christ is the lamb who takes away our sins. He's the king who comes to us humbly on a donkey. And he's a man about 
to be sentenced to die, to be exchanged for our sins. But then we hear here, behold your son and behold your mother. First, this text reveals that some women are by the cross of Jesus. Now, for a long time, I would highlight to myself and in my teachings the bravery of this woman, of these women. And yes, they are brave, especially in contrast to the men who had left Jesus. So Matthew and Mark told us that the disciples all left him and fled. And some point out too, well, apparently John didn't. John didn't leave him and, and flee. If you didn't know, that's the disciple whom he loved. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that in a minute. But all these men who had told Jesus earlier in the night, we'll stick it out with you. You'll, we'll be near you. We'll never leave you. Peter among them. And then all left him and fled. But these women, here they are at the feet of the cross. And it was brave of them, yes. But also my studies have revealed that this is, this is a custom. There's an expectation in the culture of the women to mourn. Now, don't take this crassly. It doesn't mean it's always disingenuous. I believe even in some occasions, though, women were even paid to mourn. <laughs> Nobody mourned you. We're going to pay. Make sure there's some mourners. But the ex- expressiveness of the Jewish culture, we're talking about a culture that would put on sackcloth and put ashes on their head to express that they're mourning. So it is expect, expected that there would be people here at the cross, mourners. But lastly, John the Apostle. And it's as if he's, when he's writing this, decades it is believed after these events, he's recalling in his mind's eye who was there. I'm sure it's a moment he would never forget. And he fails to mention somebody until the narrative picks up himself. Because again, we read, when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. It was after he named the people near the cross that he, oh yeah, I was there too. (laughs) Now I'm about to crush all your favorite movies and depictions. I'm sorry, you didn't expect this when you came here tonight. But it is believed by many that crosses were not raised up several feet above people. In fact... Many believe you would be able to look at such victims and prisoners on the cross right in the eyes. Romans were hoping that passers-by would spit on them and the like. They were likely eye-level. So this is why when there is that sign hung above Jesus, it's a sign of identification. It would be expected that that could be read rather easily. And the fact that we have many sayings of Jesus as he hung from the cross tells us that he could be heard. Because it's not likely he's projecting as loud as I am right now. (laughs) Uh, He was, in fact, probably heaving and catching his breath more than anything. It was likely that he could be heard because folks could surround him and look him in the eyes. The disciple whom he loved was nearby. At the cross... John uses this name for himself, presumably out of humility, so as not to name himself in a book about Jesus. He wanted it to be solely about Jesus and not about himself. And we'll come back to that point. I brought that up for a minute. A book, uh, I brought that up for a reason. A book solely about Jesus. But as I mentioned too, 
Matthew and Mark explicitly stated that all the disciples left them and fled, but here's John. Now, some people who aren't looking to be convinced of the Bible, they're looking to convince others of what they want to be true, and that is, the Bible is contradictory, and with error, they will say, what about this then? All the disciples left him and fled, but here's John at the cross. Well, John's a disciple, isn't he? Well, yes, congratulations on having good comprehension. But to broaden such skills, this simply means that John returned. <laughs> uh, I myself can confess that I've, I've left or quit things in the middle of them out of fear, but then I found enough bravery later on to return to such events and endure a little more. John, like the rest of the apostles, likely fled in the garden. John informs us, though, that apparently while the rest of the disciples fled for good, John and Peter just ran for cover. Because it isn't too long that we're informed that they're stealthily following Jesus. Peter, of course, ends up denying Jesus three times. But John tells us in his account he was in the same courtyard with Peter. But the next time we see John, though, is here at the cross. And then we read that he, that is Jesus, said to his mother, woman. And I just want to stop there for a second. First, we need to clear up. This isn't the rude, quick, terse way we say woman today. Woman, make me a sandwich. <laughs> but... What is telling and what is interesting and what is not debated is that this is a term that would still show significant distance between a son and his mother. Woman in Aramaic or its English counterpart is probably more like ma'am. <laughs> now I have family in the South and even I a time or two have been known to say to women as maybe whenever I put food in the grocery stores on the shelves or I stocked pop or chips. I would say, yes, ma'am, or do you need any help, ma'am? What commentators will point out, though, is that the times my own mother might show up in the pop aisle, I would never call her ma'am, right? I'd call her mom. So there is this term that's not rude, but it is significantly not overly familiar. And this isn't, in fact, the first time in the book of John that Jesus calls his mom woman. We hear it near the beginning of the book when Mary and Jesus are at a wedding in Cana. You remember the story, the wedding hosts run out of wine and Mary comes to Jesus asking if he can do anything about this. And Jesus said to her, woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour has not yet come. See, I wonder if this is very telling and if it's part of John framing his gospel account. I mentioned this briefly on Sunday that Jesus has many statements throughout John's gospel account where he deifies himself. That is, he, he says something that he reveals that he believes and knows that he's God because he is. And while Matthew and Luke open with narrations of Jesus' birth, John comes out of the gate with the incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, right? Like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God. John 1.14, the Word became flesh. And now here in John 2.4, John is showing us an emphasis on of separation. See, John, likely familiar with all of the other gospel accounts, is saying, in, in essence, he's saying, you know, it's established that Jesus walked among us as a man, but here's the side of him that 
shows us he knew his time, he knew his ministry, he knew his purpose, he knew his being God in the flesh was real. And here is evidences of the Lord Jesus distancing himself. Now it's it's hard to imagine, but perhaps for reasons of mental preparation, Jesus obviously no doubt loved the mother that God entrusted him to, but woman, what do I have to do with you? This separation. You know, I decide my time. My time has not yet come. Now, of course, Jesus does resolve the issue of wine brought up, so there's a bit of compassion there. Just as we see compassion here at the cross as He's addressing His mother again, Woman, behold your son. And then He said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. And tradition says that she lived with John for about 15 years until she died. Now, I have this theory that, you know, I looked through a few sources. I looked at five study Bibles. I looked at three to four commentaries. This is my usual diligence in most sermon prep. And they all have theories and interpretations, and I read over them. But I have my own theory. And I all that to say is that I'm sure this theory probably exists out there, but if not, and if the theory stinks, I'll take the blame entirely. Because I didn't read anybody with this theory I'm about to give you. Now, I wonder if this passage, though it is historically about Jesus and trusting care of his mother with a brother who did his father's will, instead of a half-brother who had not believed in him, you you read earlier in John that Jesus' own brothers, presumably Mary's own other sons, uh, didn't believe in Jesus. But I wonder if, if this is a picture of something. And it kind of goes with what was read about um, these two offerings that Phil read. Uh, did the crowd want Barabbas, which is actually translated as son of the father? Or did the crowd want Jesus, another son of the Father? Well, what do you mean, Kevin? How does this connect to Mary and John? It's interesting to me that Jesus is appointing a substitution from the cross. No longer would the God-man be the son for Mary, but Jesus appoints another son, a brother of His in the faith for Mary. And Jesus appoints, yes, a mother for John. And there is this substitution happening. And without clear words, nevertheless, in symbolism, in a sign, John likes to use signs in his book, at the cross we are reminded that believers in Jesus are recipients of a substitution. His life for our lives. His death taking away our spiritual death. His righteousness for our sins. You know, where Paul likes to speak in theological plainness, he made him who knew no sin to be sin in our, on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It seems like John likes to speak in signs and pictures, especially if you read Revelation, and spiritually portray theological truths. We have this picture of substitution at the cross But we also have this picture of substitution as the chief priests and the Pharisees conspire 
to kill Jesus. Earlier in John, there is this unwitting prophecy out of Caiaphas. He says, I forget what chapter, I didn't write it down, but verses 49 through 52, I believe chapter 12, but it says, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did not say on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now Caiaphas is here suggesting this. It's okay to kill Jesus because if we don't, He's going to rile up our people so much that Rome's going to oppress us even more. He's going to wipe us all out. So, to kill him, we're going to spare the nation. It's going to be one man for the nation. But as John alludes to in his writing, Caiaphas' words are more telling of who Jesus is than Caiaphas even knows. So this is what we celebrate tonight, that one man should die for the people, his people. That man is the God-man Christ Jesus, who just as he substituted a son to care for his mother, so he substitutes himself for us. And only hours before he was on that cross, he symbolically invited his disciples to partake in that substitution. To take bread and wine and remember him. Note, It's interesting, John gives us more content than any of the Gospel accounts of what happened in that upper room since John apparently was filling in blanks, though, left by the other Gospel writers. John didn't give us the traditional Last Supper account. (laughs) What John did give us, though, was similar content in the chapter 6 of his book, and I would like to read this for you. John 6, 47-58, we hear Jesus speaking... Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews therefore began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats of this bread shall live forever. This is what we remember this evening. A few injunctions I I want to give us before we partake of communion. First, this is open to disciples of Jesus, period. Obviously, it's not a matter of membership. It's a matter of, do you believe this? 
Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? Are you accepting of His substitution, His life for yours? And if this is where you're at, period, of course you're invited tonight. Secondly, Paul would write in his letter in 1 Corinthians, I believe chapter 11, says we ought to examine ourselves on evenings like these. For Paul's audience, they were coming to this table less than sober-minded. Some were literally drunk. Some were overly hungry. They weren't coming with purpose to call to mind of what Jesus was saying. Perhaps for us, we can take this less serious if we think this is a night where we just get to refill on our spiritual tank. As in if these elements just adds a little more assurance to our salvation. We come here out of obedience to our Lord and Savior, not manipulation or bribery or just trying to nudge Him and say, I'm scratching your back, you scratch mine. The price has already been paid. He, he's died for our sins. We've accepted Him. We, we come here out of remembrance and obedience. Thirdly, if you or I don't feel that we're in a place that's right with God, if, if we come to this table out of obedience and profession saying, you've died for me, but then we have no intention of laying down our lives for Him, perhaps this should give us reasonable caution. If you don't feel right with God, don't minimize or disrespect this table, His invitation. If you're in downright sin and you know you are and you've been resisting His Holy Spirit's call to repentance, and if you still find yourself in a place to say, I don't know if I can repent, then take this time for a spiritual check. Who is your Lord? Jesus came to die for the sins of the world, but He also came to make disciples. And disciples ought to follow their Master. So lastly, this would be a great evening to get right with God. If you do feel checked, make this a night of surrender. Make this a night where you say to God, by your grace, save me and move me out of my sins. Move me out of my stagnation. I want to make things right with you and with others. Let this be a night of repentance. If you're not right with God, get right with Him. Take His body and shed blood for your sins. And then in His grace and by His Holy Spirit, move forward. Seek to right wrongs that you have done. We're going to do this a little bit different than we've done this before. I'm going to invite you to come forward, but instead of taking communion by yourselves as you come forward or right when you get back to your seats, I would invite us to let's all take this together. And so if you feel like you can come forward, just come forward and collect these elements. Hold on to them when you return to your seats. Don't drink, don't eat. And when I sense everyone who has desired to come forward to pick up these elements, then I would like to lead us through a scriptural account of the Last Supper, and then we'll take the elements together as a body. So please, if you feel led, come forward, collect a, a cup and a cracker, return to your seats, and then we'll take communion together. <clears throat> First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning with verse 23. Paul recounts for us this uh, Lord's Supper, and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this 
in remembrance of me. Let's see it together. It says, In the same way, he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink this together. Paul would conclude that for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this visible reminder, this tangible reminder of of how we enter into communion with you, thinking about your broken body and your shed blood. Thank you for dying for our sins and rising again. So please continue to speak to us, to help us to be in communion with you, not only in this way, but also throughout our days and our weeks, that people would see Jesus when they see us, that we would proclaim your death, and by that we would proclaim that forgiveness of sins is found in you, and that we would proclaim your resurrection, that we don't need to live trapped and ensnared by our sins, but we can rise again and walk in new life empowered by your Spirit. We thank you for this truth, Father. We love you and we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.